Well, good morning. Great to be together. Good to see you. I also want to say hi to all of you joining us online this weekend. Great to have you with us. Uh, if you've got a Bible, we are headed to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 18. I do invite you to turn there with me. We're going to read the whole chapter in just a moment. So the last time I was at Walt Disney World in Florida was five or six years ago, and there was a there was a ride that was newer at the time called Avatar Flight of Passage, and everyone said, you've got to go on, you've got to go on this ride. So I did, and I didn't know what to expect, but when it was over, it, it, was, it was this thrilling, probably one of the best rides I've ever been on, right? It was so good, I wanted to get back in the very long line to ride it again, because it was this sensory stunning experience. Because I, I like the sensational. And I bet you, you do too. Some, you know, we, we want those experiences that are, that are moving and thrilling, that, that do something to us. And so, so we chase them, all of us do. I took my wife uh, to see the musical Hamilton. Uh, now, I, I'm not really into musicals. I don't, I don't get it. The last time we saw a musical, my, my wife said, what'd you think? I said, it was fine. There's a lot of singing. She said, well, it's because it's a musical. Right? I, but Hamilton, unbelievable. It, it, I was laughing. I was crying. I didn't want it to end. It was this, this sensational, thrilling experience. Before we had kids, uh, my family of brothers, my mom and dad and I, we all we went on a, a family trip to Europe. We went to Italy and Austria and Germany. It was just this experience. It was incredible. It was moving. It was history. The food was just outstanding. My wife, uh, Rebecca, loves meat. She's a carnivore. And with her allergies, all she can really eat is meat and vegetables. And so we eat, we eat a lot of meat. And I received a gift card to this really fancy steakhouse in Milwaukee called Carnivore, which is stupid expensive. It was for three of us, it was like 300 bucks, but at, which, on a pastor's salary. But I had a gift card. So it covered most of it, right? It was, it was just this experience, the way they treated you, the best steak I ever had. It was just so, so good. I took a trip to Israel. One of the most moving moments was was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus knelt and prayed to God, Father, would you take this cup from me where he sweat the drops of blood and it was just this spiritually moving, sensational, wow experience. And all of those things are good. Hamilton, vacations in Italy, going to Carnivore, going to Israel and standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're, they're all good. But most of the time, my life is lived in the rather unremarkable. Most of my life is fairly boring, and I'm okay with that. I mean, for entertainment, we're not typically rushing off to the next great performance of Hamilton or something. Most of the time, if it's nice out, we either sit on our back deck and listen to the birds and watch my dog eat dirt, which I don't know why he does that, but he likes it. Or we're on the couch maybe watching something on Netflix. And we're not jetting off to vacations in, in Italy. I mean, most of the time our vacations are wherever my parents happen to be. So that's either Michigan or Florida, depending if they're snowboarding or not. We stay in their house, all 17 of us. And we're not 
making weekly visits to carnivore for steak. I mean, most of our meat comes from Costco, which I think is the most magical place on earth. And I'm obviously not going to the Garden of Gethsemane all that that often. But I do come to worship each week and I I sing the songs and I each day read my my Bible and, and pray and have, have silence. The truth is that it's very easy to become obsessed with the remarkable, with the sensational, always chasing it. There's even an acronym we've created, FOMO, the fear of missing out. Because we see the sensational lives other people live and we, we seem to want that. And when we're not experiencing the sensational, there's almost a thought as if something's wrong or, or missing out on significance. And so, so many continue to chase the big, the spectacular, the more. It can be rather dizzying and at times nauseating. I, I have a friend who has a, had a teenage son, and we were at a carnival. I don't remember why we were there, but we were at this carnival, and there was a ride at the carnival. It looked kind of like this ride, and the kid wanted to go on it. None of us wanted to go on it because I, I, I love to ride carnival rides, but not ones that spin in circles because I'm, like, I'm too old for that. But no one would go on it with him, so I said, fine, I'd go on this ride. Huge mistake. When I got off, I was so nauseated for hours. I just couldn't regain my equilibrium. It was, it was an awful experience. When we're constantly, when I'm constantly chasing the spectacular, trying to find the next experience, it can be rather nauseating, at least in our soul. This summer, we are spending time in some of the more familiar stories of the Old Testament. And many of the stories in the Old Testament are of the sensational variety. Uh, they're, they're, they're supernatural, many of them. And well, like last weekend, we spent some time with Abraham and his son Isaac, and God says, sacrifice your son, and there's this miraculous provision, and it was a story that was inspiring, and faith in God and all these things. And while we're inspired by the sensational, we're actually transformed we're shaped, we mature in the seemingly unremarkable. Those, those day-to-day actions and decisions that we make, the, the weekly determination and discipline, those, those regular practices. Yes, I was thrilled in the Garden of Gethsemane as I stood where Jesus stood, but I'm transformed as I open the scriptures each morning and sit in his presence inspiration happens in a moment, but true transformation is a journey of a lifetime. Today's story from Exodus chapter 18 is one of the more unremarkable stories of the Old Testament. You may even question, why would you choose that story? But as we read today, what we're going to discover is that the deepest work God does in our life seems to happen in those moments that on the surface, are unremarkable. Exodus chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 1 through 29. So lean in with me here as I read this, and if the person next to you falls asleep, kick them. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, and the father-in-law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel. 
and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zephora, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other's name was Eleazar, for he said, my father's God was my helper and he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with with Moses, his father-in-law, in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning until evening. When his father-in-law saw that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for all the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourself out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me. I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and as God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they served as judges for all the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his country. So by the time we come to Exodus chapter 18, Moses has essentially lived four lives. He's gone through four seasons of, of living. In this first season of his life, he grows up in the home of Pharaoh. Now, if you're familiar with the story, 
uh, Pharaoh ordered that the Egyptian male children be killed because they were growing too big as a nation. So Moses' mother hid him in a basket amongst the reeds and Pharaoh's daughter found him, took him into her home and he became a child in the household of Pharaoh. And he had everything he wanted. He was rich. He had access to the, the best of the best. His father was, his grandfather was the most powerful person in the world. But then an incident happened when Moses was a bit older. He saw an Egyptian soldier beating an Israeli a Jewish, Jewish worker. And so he intervened and ended up killing the, the, the Egyptian soldier. And he was afraid for his life, so he ran into the desert where he discovered Jethro's family and he became a shepherd in the desert for 40 years. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about shepherding. I I don't, but it is a rather mundane job. Moses got up in the morning, ate his breakfast, and watched the sheep. Went to bed that night, got up the next morning, ate breakfast, and watched the sheep. Then he went to bed that night, he got up the next morning, ate breakfast, and guess what he did? He watched the sheep. For 40 years, the day-to-day grind and drudgery of getting up and watching the sheep. Is this all there is? Maybe this is all there is to my life. I'm going to get up every day. I'm going to eat breakfast and I'm going to watch the sheep. But then a third season began to unfold in Moses' life as he's watching the sheep and he notices a peculiar sight. There's a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. And he goes to to see what this thing is. And out of the bush, God speaks to him and calls him to go and speak to Pharaoh and release his people, the Jewish nation, the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. And he has this astounding series of supernatural experiences that began with the bush And then he's in Egypt and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And there's the plagues, the signs, the wonders, the miracles that he, he works with his staff. And as Pharaoh lets them go and changes his mind, chases the the Israelites out into the desert, Moses stands at the Red Sea and now there's the, the sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them and he puts his staff in the sea and the waters part. And I'm telling you, if I were there that day, I'd be a believer. Right? There was the sensational that was happening and, and in the desert there was this pillar of fire that guided the nation by night and the cloud, a cloud by day and all of these amazing, stupendous, inspiring, sensational things are happening. And then they're in the desert for 40 years. Now, I, I don't know if what, you, what, what you have in mind when you think of the desert, but... I stood in the desert where Moses led his people and I took a picture of it and this is it. This is the picture that, this is the desert Moses led his people in and there's a, there's a lot of nothing. It's not even any trees or bushes. It's just this brown landscape. And Moses is in the desert and he's experienced the thrill of winning. But now, as he leads these people, he's also experiencing the weight of winning. Verses 1 through 12, we, we read that he's defeated. He's defeated the world's strongest leader, of course, with the help of God. But now he's responsible for all of these people. Now, his father in law, Jethro, hears what's happened. News travels fast. 
and his father-in-law Jethro is impressed. It's a good day when you can impress your father-in-law. Like I, I try to impress my father-in-law and someday I'm going to be a father-in-law and I want to be impressed, right? I remember when I decided to ask Rebecca to marry me, I knew I needed to ask her father's permission. He's certainly old fashioned that way. Uh, we lived a couple states away. It was a 13 hour drive and it would have been much easier to pick up the phone and call him and ask him, but I decided, no, I need to, to drive to drive to Colorado and, and ask him personally if I could marry his daughter. It was a, it was a terrifying experience, really. My father-in-law was a Marine and uh, old-fashioned and a lot of things, and I was, I was terrified of him in that moment that was coming. My wife had an idea that this was going to happen, and so one day we went to the mall. My wife, Rebecca, and I, my future current white. Well, you know what I mean. We went to the mall and her mom and dad came with us and she said, okay, Mike, me and mom are going to go shop. And I was left alone with Jake. (laughs) So we went to the food court. We ordered a couple of orange Julius drinks, which was the last orange Julius I've ever, I've ever had. And we sat at a table in the food court and it took me, I'm a true story. It took me 45 minutes to just get up the guts to ask him. I was sweating profusely. I was so nervous. And of course he said yes, because here we are. And when we came back, my wife said, how did it go? And all I had to do was lift up my arms. And it's, I mean, it, it was an experience really. But I impressed him and he said yes. So, so people are talking and Jethro hears about what God has done through Moses and he goes to visit him and, and he worships. And, and some believe that in this moment, because of what God did through Moses, Jethro actually converts to becoming a worshiper of, of Yahweh. But Jethro also observes the weight, the good and the bad that Moses is now responsible for. The, the serving of the people, the, the direction and vision he has for their spirituality, the conflict resolution, And so Jethro observes Moses' leadership practices and he notices that that Moses is doing it all by himself and people are standing around him from morning until evening, every day. And as someone who's an introvert, that just sounds painful. People standing around me from morning until evening, he's doing it all himself. And some of you can, can relate to that because you try and do it all yourself because of course no one can do it as good as you. Most of us in this room are leading in some capacity. If we have influence over anybody, then we're, then we're leading them. So if you're a parent, you're, you're leading. If you're a teacher, you're leading your students. If you're a business owner, you're leading your employees. If you're a manager, you're leading those, those under you. And for some of us, because we think we can do it better than everyone else, there's this, this grind in which we wear ourselves out because we're trying to do everything. Jethro sees Moses trying to do everything and he, he offers him the potency of some wise advice. We come to verses 13 through 23. And the wise advice that Jethro gives his son-in-law is this. Moses, what you're doing is not good. You're offering spiritual counsel. You're rendering judgments. You're doing all of these things and it's not sustainable. 
If you turn back to Exodus 12, what you notice is that Moses led 600,000 men out of Egypt. You add in their families, and that's a lot of people. And so Moses is taking care of 600,000 families by himself. And so he, he's willing to receive this advice. You ever have someone notice that you're doing something that wasn't good and they, they offered you advice and you didn't take it? When I first started out as a pastor, I worked seven days a week because it was important work. And I thought, well, the, the devil never takes a day off, so why should I? And then someone pointed out, well, why would you make the devil your role model? Touche. But I still worked seven days a week because I was doing good work. I was doing God's work. And my wife would regularly say to me, what you're doing is not good. Most people have two days off a week. It's called a weekend. You should try that. Nope, I've got important work to do. I'm an important person doing good things. So I'd work seven days a week. Well, that eventually catches up with you. And it caught up with me not only mentally and emotionally, but also also physically. So after 20 years of doing that, or 15 years, however long it was, I finally decided to give it a try and take a couple of days off each week. And it was amazing what it did for me. I looked at my wife and I said, wow, you were right. She said, I know. <laughs> Most of us are really good at giving advice. We're just not great at receiving it. And what I learned is you can do a lot of good for other people while doing harm to yourself. Well, you can do a lot of good things for a lot of people and totally neglect yourself. I had a mentor one time look me in the eye and say, Mike, you know what your problem is? Which whenever someone says, you know what your problem is, that's, that's a rough way to start. He said, the problem you have is you, you're trying to do everything yourself and so you have no margin in your life, no room. You have no margin in your life for new opportunities that may come. But you also have no margin in your life for the unexpected challenges that come. And you certainly have no margin in your life for that which is wildly important. I mean, that was Moses. Every day he's standing around trying to help these 600,000 families with with their issues. And, And Jethro says, you're wearing yourself out. And it's not just the work. It's not just the physicality of the work. It's also the weight of the work. It's the weight of leading. It's the weight of leading your family, the weight of leading your business, the weight of leading your employees. It starts to take its toll. And not only, Moses, are you wearing yourself out, but you're also wearing everybody else out. You ever been to a business recently and and they say, please be patient, we're short-staffed? Isn't that a frustrating thing to hear? Because you know the wait is going to be long. Moses was short-staffed. Like he, he was, he was it. And because he was trying to do it all himself, people were getting frustrated. When you try to do it all yourself, you're going to frustrate somebody. Years ago, uh, we, we were in the midst, I was in the midst of just a very chaotic time in both my life, but also my leadership as a pastor. Just a very chaotic time. I was doing a lot of it myself and trying to carry a lot of weight. And someone reached out to me 
asked me to, to pray for them because they were experiencing the worst day of their life. And in my, my role, I spend a lot of time with people who are experiencing the worst day of their life. And they shared with me what was going on. They said, would you pray for me? And I, I did. <clears throat> Prayed for them. And it, then I just, I, I just forgot about it. Because, you know, when, when you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of people, it's hard to keep it all track. And I was dealing with another crisis. And so I, I'd just forgotten about that moment. Well, a few months later, they reached out again and said, it got worse. This is what happened. And you didn't care because you never reached out again. And they were so mad at me. And rightly so, really, when I think about it. But that's the consequence of trying to do it all yourself. People get frustrated. Because each day, I make an exchange, and so do you. I exchange my time for something. Psalm 90, which was written by Moses, he writes, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Our days are limited. Your life, according to the Bible, is a breath. It's a mist. It's a vapor. Teach us to number our days. Show us what's important for this day. And so I exchange my time. We often talk about time management, but there's another exchange that we make. We exchange our time, which we all get the same amount of, but we also exchange our energy, which we all don't. We don't all have the same amount of. So we exchange our time. We exchange our enemy. There's an alert of some kind. It sounds like an amber alert. Continue. All right. We got that out of the way. Moses was challenged to focus on the wildly important. The willingness to do what is good, the willingness to do what is suitable, the willingness to do what is right. Moses listened and he acted. Sometimes God brings people into our life to expose those things that we cannot see. I've come to believe that there is a fine line that we walk that needs attention. See, there is a fine line between working hard and burning out. But there's also another equally important line that we walk. The line between self-care, and we, we talk a lot about self-care these days, but there's a, there's a, there's an important line between self-care And just being lazy, which is a different sermon for a different day. See, the willingness to do what is, what is good sometimes means the seemingly mundane action of adapting. I I heard a story recently about an Earthbrooker that went through an experience that was 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 difficult, but it wasn't the miraculous that shaped them and changed them. It was the seemingly ordinary and mundane. So take a moment and watch this story. When I first joined Northbrook, I was in a very rough spot. My mother was going through treatments for brain cancer, and I couldn't come in person at the time because I had to care for her. 
My mom passed in late December of 2021, and at that point, I had a decision to make to either abandon my faith and be completely consumed with anger at a God who could have prevented her death, or to jump headfirst into my faith and trust the process. So I began attending Northbrook in person, sitting alone in the back of the church. When Pastor Mike had brought up signing up for the spring season of life groups, I just knew I had to sign up because I needed community now more than ever. My goal upon signing up for this life group was to get involved with people my age who had something in common with me, faith. I wanted to surround myself with people who wanted to chase a relationship with God and with me. This isn't very easy to come by these days, so I felt like I had struck gold when I first joined 1829. This life group has helped me grow in my faith. When I first joined the group, I was just coming back to religion after being on a four-year hiatus. It can be intimidating coming into a new group. That was not the case with 1829. The group is very warm, welcoming, and close-knit. After the first day, I had to come back. I used to sit alone at church, as I said before. Upon joining 1829, I was asked to join the group in the sanctuary at the 1030 service so I didn't have to sit alone anymore. This has made coming to church fun again. Now you'll see our church sit in the sanctuary for at least 10 minutes after the sermon to discuss plans for the coming week. As I tell people frequently, the people I do life with are members from 1829. I regularly see my friends in this group three to four times a week. We do so much together, from Bible study on Sunday nights to line dancing on Mondays to the formal Thursday night studies. They are actively involved in my life, praying for me and being the light in a dark world. I had always prayed for God to bring me relationships that challenged me to be a better Christian, and I feel that 1829 has been an answered prayer. Not only am I being challenged to get into the Word, but being challenged to be curious, to ask difficult questions, and to contemplate what it truly means to be a Christian. In other words, I have started to actively think about what I believe and why I believe it, which has deepened my faith significantly. This group has helped me learn that I am not alone. They have come alongside me in my group grief and supported me. They are some of the most empathetic individuals I have met to date. Little by little, I have begun to trust God again and that he has a plan to work my mom's death for my good and his glory. 1829 has truly transformed how I look back on my entire life. God has always been and will continue to be with me. One of the biggest life lessons I've learned in 1829 is that even when our situations aren't good, God is always good. I have met some of the most amazing people in my life, and I literally don't know how I went so long doing life without them. I know for a fact that had my mom not gotten sick, I would have never stepped foot into this church. So while the circumstances of my coming back to faith aren't ideal, I know that everything has happened for a reason. I now have some of the best friends and the most amazing boyfriend who I hope to marry someday. To the leaders in Northbrook, keep doing what you're doing. Life groups can change the trajectory of people's lives. I could have been the lost girl who isolated herself after her mom's passing and abandoned faith completely. Instead, I'm the girl who has persevered despite her circumstances, and it's all because of this church and this life group. So I, I find Grace's story inspiring because as she walks through the unthinkable, it wasn't this sensational experience that transformed 
her. It was the everyday, seemingly mundane invitations and choices that were made that really made all the difference. So this week, as as you think about Moses and Jethro, maybe be reminded that our, our days are numbered. Our energy is limited. What is it that's wildly important? If you just took a moment this week and, and wrote down those three things in your life that are wildly important to you, those things that make all, all of the difference, you're, you're kind of understanding where Moses is, where he took on those things that were wildly important and delegated the rest to somebody else. I was actually challenged as I wrote this and I started thinking about those wildly important things in my, my life and all of them are good and none of them really are all that sensational, but they make all the difference. I, I started thinking first that, that what's wildly important for me is to, to take care of my own soul. I mean, Jesus said you can gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? I also realized as I thought about this that that what's wildly important for me is to take care of and spend ridiculous amounts of time with my family because my family is everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I do feel, I'm pretty sure that God has called me into ministry and God has called me to be the pastor of this church, but I'm certain God has called me to take care of my family. And finally, for, for me, what's wildly important, I've realized, is that I need to spend a lot of time in prayer and study because if I, I don't do that, then I have nothing to offer you when I'm asked for spiritual counsel or when I write a sermon. And, and then, not only do we take a look at what's wildly important, but, but who are those people that we trust to offer wise advice? Who, who is your Jethro that says what you're doing is not good? I think of a, a story I heard about a man named... Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce was a young man who began his career as a minister leading youth rallies in China in the 1940s. He was wildly successful at his work in Asia, drawing large crowds, but he had a a moment that challenged him, a moment that inspired him. An, uh, An aid worker, a relief worker, approached him with a little baby who was abandoned, who was an orphan, and said to him, Bob, what you're doing with these rallies is great, but what about her? What are you going to do about her? It was from that moment that he was inspired to start an organization that we now know as World Vision. Between the years 1956 and 1964, he would become one of the top 10 most traveled men in the world because of this organization he started. As a consequence, uh, Bob Pierce was absent from his home and his family, his wife and his daughters, for 10 months out of the year. And when he did come home, his bags were often left packed because he would usually be back on the road within a week. He once famously said that he made a deal with God, that if God would take care of his little lambs at home, he would take care of God's little lambs around the world. And it was an odd, odd prayer and deal to make with God since the scriptures say If a person doesn't take care of their own family, they're worse than an unbeliever. Bob Pierce was overworked, was stressed and exhausted, which led to confrontations with his board. And eventually the board of World Vision fired him from his position, 
fired him from the organization he started. So as a result, he decided to keep going and started another organization that we now know as Samaritan's Purse, also doing relief work around the world. One day, his his daughter Sharon called him. He was overseas, and she asked if he would please come home and spend some time with her. She was depressed and desperately needed to see her father. He responded by saying it was out of the question because he had important work to do in Vietnam. Her mother, his wife, who was with him at the time, decided to travel home early. And when she got home, she found her daughter in the hospital with her wrists bound, recovering from an unsuccessful attempt at taking her own life. She said to her mom, I know you love me, mama, but I just need to feel daddy's arms around me. It never happened. So in November of 1968, she tried again, and this time she did not fail. Bob Pierce and his wife were divorced, and he died alone of leukemia in a hospital bed. I wonder what would have been different if someone whom he trusted would have been able to say, Bob, what you're doing isn't good. Oh, I, I know this, this story is on the more of the sensational side. But I wonder, are, are you sitting here today and maybe you need someone to say to you, what you're, what you're doing is not good. Oh yeah, you're successful. Yes, you are doing a lot of good things for a lot of people. But you're actually hurting yourself and those that matter most. Because you can do good for others and harm yourself and those that you care the most about. In in Moses' case, it was changing focus and delegating a lot of the work so he could focus on the wildly important. For, For some of us, it might be as simple as saying no more than we say yes. Others of us, it might be something as radical as changing vocation and career because your vocation and career is killing you and your family. Oh, it may mean living a bit more simply, but I got to hear Jesus' words. What what is your soul worth? Moses, what you're, what you're doing is not good. But when you choose to adjust like he did and focus on what's wildly important, even in the seemingly mundane, it makes all the difference. I'm grateful, oh God, that I've had people in my life that have said to me, Mike, what you're doing is not good. And while this story is seemingly about delegation, there's something much more profound. When we choose to exchange our time and our energy for that which is wildly important and choose to not simply seek the sensational, but those every day, moment-by-moment choices that make all the difference in the world. Jesus, I pray that you would help us. Help us to hear wise advice when it comes. And would you show us that which is wildly important. Oh, it may look different. It will look different for all of us. So would you, Holy Spirit, show us Show us what's good. 
God, show us what's good. 